Udemy is kind of for people who are passionate about teaching and sharing what they know. People think that being a teacher is really about knowledge of a skill. But what I've learned over the years of being a teacher is that's a small part of it or maybe a half of it. But another part of it is, can you present that information in a clear way so that less people go, I don't get it. And course structure is fine. And with Udemy, of course, you know, you have to be good at audio, good at video. There's all these peripheral skills. So it's really expertise, ability to create the audio, audiovisual ability, and also uh, teaching ability. So it's all of those things together is what makes a good teacher. You're listening to Ecomonics, a Debutify podcast, your resource for one-of-a-kind insights into the world of e-commerce and business in the modern age. This is Joseph. I'll be presenting a wealth of industry knowledge from interviews with successful business people and our own state-of-the-art research. Your time is valuable, so let's go. My first impression of today's guest, Alex Gennadinik, started with his t-shirt brand, Wave If You Like, a small but significant gesture that can sprawl out into a lot of good, depending on the day and the weather. We also get some insights into Udemy, one of the teaching platforms we covered in recent days. Alex is one of the best on the platform, and it shows that regardless of what you do, there's somewhere for you to share that to your benefit and to others as well, as long as you're at least one step from the first. It doesn't take as long to get into as you might think. Have a listen. Alex Gennadinik, it is good to have you here on Ecomonics. Thank you for joining us today. How are you doing? How are you feeling? Great. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Thanks for being here. So let's jump right into this because you have a wide array of knowledge and experience, and we're going to be doing a lot of gear shifts, people. So buckle up. Uh, the opening question across nearly every interview podcast in history, and it's no exception here. Uh, tell us who you are and what do you do? Sure. So right now, the biggest thing I do is I'm one of the top Udemy instructors teaching marketing, business, entrepreneurship, things like that. I'm also a best-selling author with some of my books used in universities, especially the business plan book is a popular one. And I've done a number of other online businesses like affiliate marketing, mobile apps, et cetera, et cetera. I do some music uh, and probably 10 other things that I'm forgetting right now. But mainly today, I'm also doing business coaching. And essentially, my core focus is uh, teaching classes uh, on and off Udemy, but mostly on Udemy. Now, I uh, here's my experience. Here's my extent of experience with Udemy. Uh, New Year's, I think, going into 2019, there was a course for um, illustration. It was like five bucks, so I signed up for it. Um, and then I got to like the first, the the introductory for it, and he said, uh, "This is going to take a lot of hard work." And I said, "I accept that." And then the habit just wasn't, it just didn't sink in. New, New Year's tradition, right? Everybody goes through it. So what I would like to know is about the interactive experience with Udemy. Um, is it I mean, how much do the uh, students get to interact with you, the teacher? And I assume some of it is based on the teacher's discretion. But so um, what is it capable of and how do you implement it? Sure. So one of the values of taking a course is interaction with the instructor. Having said that, the instructors who are popular have hundreds of thousands of students, so you can't just bombard the instructor. But I try to pride myself on, you know, having world-class support and care for students. So I try to answer any questions within 24 hours or some questions, you know, if I'm online, I might answer within 10 minutes, 30 minutes, one hour, uh, just because I want the students to, you know, get past their questions and move forward and be happy with the course. So yeah, you're right. Like some instructors, you will never hear from them. 
but some instructors that care actually put in the time to to respond to students and uh often you know a course can be you know one size fits all but the instructor can really point a student in the right direction solving a lot of problems for that student exactly sometimes an instructor just needs to um, explain things with a different uh, syntax in order for it to sink in, right? We all, we all learn a little bit differently. And, you know, this is a, it, it's an exciting time, uh, especially for education, because uh, one of the conversations that I was having with my parents um, over Christmas was like the difference between their educational experience and my educational experience. I'm 31 years old. You know, when they, when they were in education, they were in portables and they were getting whipped to my nuns, uh, that had the sticks on them. Now, granted, they turned out to be very competent people. So there is that. But when I when I went through elementary school, I, I got to be honest with you, it was good sometimes, but it was mostly a nightmare. Uh, I did not get along with a lot of the other students in class. I have some core friends that are I'm still friends with to this day. I didn't get along with the teachers. One of them would like see me drawing, and rather than nurture my gift, would like rip my drawings out from under me and says, "This isn't the time." I was like, "Well, all right, fine." And what I found was most of my learnings and most of the skills that have stuck with me to this day, my college program was pretty good, but it's mostly just been what I had the initiative and what I did on my own because I was so driven by my own uh, desire to want to f- explore something where the energy and the and the passion was just coming up organically. Um, and, and that was largely been media and in podcasting and writing and creativity and all that. What I'm wondering about with the Udemy program is... Or you know, with with your experience in online education as a whole, is um, what happens after? Um, it, are, are people able to take this knowledge and a, really turn this into a, a business venture for them? I don't know if like people really understand the value of like Udemy degrees in compared to like a college degree, which also, if you statistically speaking, college degrees are I just some degrees are valuable, some not so much. I know that was a lot there to unpack, but whenever I get to think about my my past, uh, a lot comes out. I, I actually have some similarities. You know, I really feel like education-wise, uh, up through high school, it was a wasteland, purely education-wise. I mean, it was fun yeah. with friends, but it, there was not much education. But in college where, uh, was where I really got to explore my curiosities. And um, actually, those curiosities really drove my career because... I was curious. I was a computer science major, but I was curious about creative writing. That led into writing music, writing books. I was, you know, curious about so many things um, that always end up finding their way into my current work that makes it different and, in a way, better. Um, so I, I actually, and that curiosity was actually the driver for all of it. And I, I was actually really pleasantly surprised to hear you say that because. Not many people would say that, and I really relate to that. Um, now, to your question about you know where does Udemy fit in? So students on Udemy, they have a few different needs. Uh, the primary need is if you have some career goal, you want to start a business, you want to get a job, you want to learn you know upskill, that's the current term. Udemy is fantastic for that because now it's funny to say, I'm going to go get a certificate that's going to cost thousands of dollars to learn Twitter. No, just go to Udemy, go take a Twitter marketing course. Tomorrow, you'll know everything you need to know about Twitter marketing. So Mm -hmm. those kinds of problems, like those kinds of scenarios, Udemy solves really well. You don't need, you could take a long, you know, uh, in-person course on any topic, but if you're self sort of a self-starter, you really don't need to do that you can go a long way with Udemy. 
and it's just for ten dollars essentially. You know, they constantly have discounts. Um, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, oh yeah, they do. Th- there's also another kind of student, the the curious student, right? This will be more along your lines, where you know, if you're taking drawing class, it's more for your inner growth in a way. There's also that student on Udemy. It, it's it's a less it's less of a drive because obviously career and money is the number one driver for e-learning. But uh, certainly there's, you know, I am a student of the of the, the kind that's, you know, pursuing their curiosities. Like I constantly take classes on things that are like, you know, other people wouldn't like emotional intelligence or music or stuff like this that people are like, well, why is you, you know, this? how, how are you going to make money with this? And I have to explain people to people this is not for money. Yeah, I, I, that's why I, the, the distinction I've always felt was important to draw between college and university. I always thought college was a place for to learn something um, in craft or in a trade or somewhere that can get people into the workforce. Whereas I, I always thought university was more of like the philosophical and the theoretical uh, to really be able to understand something on a, on a deeper level. Um, I don't think that's really what the educational system has conveyed. I think now people see college as a prerequisite for university and university is a prerequisite for paid work, hopefully. Yeah, I, I, I would also almost just take a step back and say, um, you know, college or university, essentially it's a vocational school for the most part, right? You're there, you're just kind of training to get a job, but... Mm-hmm. It's not, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're getting an education like you don't know Shakespeare, you know, you might not know Shakespeare or opera mm-hmm. or writing or, and people might say, well, why do I need opera? Well, it's really, that's the role of education is for your own inner growth so that you're, you know, you, you have a richer life. And I, I don't know that current education system, the university-based education system really provides that. If I just stuck to my computer science training, I would get zero of that, like for the most, you know, essentially mm-hmm. almost zero of that. And it had to be on my own initiative. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't expecting to uh, to bring this up, but I've had this theory about educational reform. Um, if it's cool with you, I'd love to talk to you about it. Sure. I know it's my show and everything, but you know, your time is really valuable. So I just wanted to... Uh, uh, buffer that. So what I, like I was saying how my parents had their experience, I had my experience and, you know, my parents' generation, they made improvements to the system. Um, so I didn't have to go through what they went through. And I, I feel that my generation, um, should do the same. And what I want to see in schools is I think the grading system is effective in helping people have like a tangible sense of where they are. But what I don't think is effective is the pressure to accomplish all of that within a year, given the vast disparity of people's educational and intellectual um, strengths and weaknesses. So what I would like to see is more of like a community center version of it where people of any age, frankly, okay, maybe you separate the kids and the adults, but uh, can sign up for a grade level class, take the class at their own leisure, and look at education and school as more of like a lifelong uh, pursuit. So I'm apply. I want to apply for a job. I need a grade twelve level math right now. My, well, frankly, my math is probably grade three right now. Anyways, so I got to go. I got to go sign up for math classes. I show up to school uh, once a week on a Thursday evening, and my classroom is people all over. You have whiz kids who are like excelling. You have uh, people who are not only learning math but they're learning English, so they're just trying to absorb whatever they can absorb. And you walk away meeting people with 
vastly different experiences. And I think it's a lot more enriching that way. So that's what I would like to see in the education. I'd be welcome to uh, comment on that, but I'd also like to know if you've had any thoughts along these lines of what you'd like to see happen to the educational system. I don't know that I have ideas that are of, you know, of any value that, you know, out, you know, that are outstanding ideas in this, um, that are too worthwhile. But what I notice in my work is that, you know, I spend a lot of time, um, with people who are adult learners who maybe, um, like didn't pick up some skills early on. And this is all kinds of skills, largely personal development skills. So, what I work with people on is like, you know, people who have like, for example, confidence issues, and this will come back to your points early on, like during their high school and early college, they don't speak up. They don't, uh, show their worth and the teachers don't know to help them with the thing that they're good in. Whereas the louder mm -hmm. kids, the more confident ones, the stronger ones, you know, there's a kind of a hierarchy in school. They get all the, oh, they yeah. get more of the attention. They, it's not necessarily that they're more talented, but they're more out there and they get more attention. And of course, teachers know, here's how we're going to help you. And a lot of the uh, quieter kids may be just less vocal, less, you know, more, uh, less confident. They just don't get that support and they don't realize as they grow, they don't realize their own strengths because internally they kind of have a voice saying, you know, I'm good at something, but it doesn't get reflected back to them by the education system just because the education system doesn't actually even know that this kid maybe wants to excel at something. And actually this was the case for me. Like I had all these things I wanted to explore early on, but I was so young, it was only a faint voice. I didn't know how to express to my teachers or anybody that I, hey, I want to do this and I want to do that. And so I just sort of, nobody did that for me. And I only realized, oh my God, like I would have realized so much more potential if there was a way, you know, um, for me to communicate that somehow by some mm -hmm. miracle. Um, and I notice a lot of really intelligent people, typically they are the quieter ones and typically this is their experience in school is that you know, they kind of have to play catch up later to realize their potential. Um, so I don't know if I have a great solution for this, but I noticed this trend uh, extend, you know, it re repeating itself time and time again. And it's a little heartbreaking because the people who, you know, kind of have um, potential aren't realizing it. And there's, and in a way help is so close, but yet kind of so far that that's really maybe a really long way to express one one thing that I think is interesting that I see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it brought up a couple of uh, thoughts on my side as well. One of them is that I, I don't know if advantage it's advantageous to introverts or extroverts because the more extroverted ones will run afoul more of the teachers anyways, and depending on their own charisma and strength level, uh, they might end up running afoul of their peers. And then you have introverts who are just trying to survive, you know, six, eight hours uh, in classroom, keeping their head down, hopefully... Uh, they don't. Uh, they don't end up being the center of attention in a way they don't like. Um, one thing I, I, I will say, because I've had a couple of friends in the past who were definitely more of the the extroverted type, where they would have no problem speaking out more often and expressing themselves more often. I, I will say I did notice that 
they're they were more street smart and i want to say in a nicer way than street smart their social intelligence was higher because i think they had a higher degree of social interactions they, because they were putting themselves more more often they got more feedback for it and they were more adept at navigating socially um so one of my friends he he was great on tinder like he was he was great at uh, hosting parties because he was he was socially intelligent and i'm more than happy to grant him that because the result the results spoke for themselves um the other the other thing i wanted to uh actually ask you about too was um because you were saying like emotional intelligence and i can't remember if i've asked anybody about this before but um what do you characterize uh, emotional intelligence as exactly this is a really good question and the answer to that will be an extremely long answer so i'm going to try to keep it short so there's there's a couple of ways to look at it um it one way to look at it is, you know, obviously there's a kind of a current a leader, you know, kind of proponent of this, or you know, the guy who's driving this is, you know, Daniel Goleman. He's he's got a popular book on this, and it's largely focusing on. He's not a researcher, by the way. He's just explaining what researchers have come up with. Um, but he's very good at like marketing and promotion, and yeah. So uh, in his world, obviously. He's very business savvy, so he's focused on corporate uh, focus to it. So, like, how do you manage your emotion in the corporate world? If you get angry, you know, take a step back, don't let you know th these kinds of things. And I think there are purists in emotional intelligence who would say that's fantastic, but it's so limited. And um, you know, there's people who have been exploring emotional intelligence for you know thousands of years, like Aristotle. If you if you look at a lot of his in the Nicomachean Ethics, my pronunciation of that is just bad. But um, you know, there's a lot of like inklings of you know what is you know what are the right emotions to have, what is the right work to do. Well, how do you match them up? What work what work makes you happy? How do you determine that? You know, he actually I think was one of the philosophers who uh, started to deeply look into that. But if I was to look at emotional intelligence. Um, taking in Daniel Goldman's work, the Aristotle, everything in between. Um, and I've taken some classes on this by, you know, the purest professors who uh, were looking at um, all the research, just, you know, how does it pertain to the individual? There's a very interesting way. I think if I was to find one anecdote, yeah, I, I, there's this, there was this, uh, I'll give you a case study. There's this, was this individual decades ago and he was a very bright lawyer. He got into an accident and, you know, he had some brain damage and what they found out that like he could actually, he recovered all the logic, all the logic he could still perform, but he lost some emotional, the part that connected his brain to the emotional centers got cut and he was extremely bad at becoming, staying a lawyer, right? He couldn't hold a job, any job. He, and people, the, 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 the scientific community got curious with this guy, like, he, he retained all the logic. Why not? And what they really determined, and I think the, the, the main researcher was that Tony Damasio. I'm not 100% sure on the main researcher, but if anybody wants to look into that. But the finding was that even though we think that our decisions are logical, how do you know A or B is better? That's emotional. Mm -hmm. And when you lose that emotional input to every one of your decisions, that's that's showing how deeply in, you know um, how deep emotions control us, right? We think we're logical, but in every even logical decision, to know is A better or B, that's emotional, you know. And sometimes mm -hmm. emotions 
um, make our decisions. Like, you know, if you have a chocolate in your one hand and a vegetable in another hand, even before you had time to think about it, and even before um, any logic has happened, your, your hand is pulling towards the chocolate, right? You know what you like better. And just regarding brain chemistry or structure, you know, the part that process, the emo- the processes the emotions is, uh, you know, it's, it's lower in the brainstem, the amygdala. Uh, mm-hmm. And obviously there's related parts, and I'm not a brain scientist by any means, but um, the part that does the logic takes a little longer to fire. So it's first, the first trigger is your emotions. Um, and so the emotional intelligence, like really, it, it, it is most of our what our day is made up of is, is the emotions. And the more we sort of focus on them and take control of it rather than it of us, um, the more interesting sort of like our lives can become because we start to control them more. So there was one observation I unearthed from that, um, which is how you're saying that the majority of decisions um, can be emotional uh, over logical. And, and yet someone, one might think that they're making a logical decision. And the, what I thought was, if someone is making a logical decision, what they're trying to do is decide between the positive outcome and a negative outcome. And the positive outcome should make a person feel better. So I think that right there is the thought process between from, okay, well, it seems, it seems logical to, well, I mean, I can't, I'm, I was trying to picture putting myself in Spock's shoes for a second there. I just trying to think of like, what would be like a, a Star Trek example of that. Uh, but yeah, that, no, that's, that, that's fascinating. So um, I wanted to get back to, uh, I just think I wanted to ask you about um, with Udemy um, and then we'll, we'll, we'll shift gears. Um, one of them is actually one thing uh, real quick, cause I didn't write this down, but how many classes do you have right now? I think it's something like 130 now. 130. Okay. So how are you dealing with the, uh, assuming this is an issue, the pressure to update them is just in case the information needs to be, um, brought up to speed in case something ends up not being relevant. Uh, is that something that you've run into? Yeah. So, um, it's a big part of what I do is actually improve existing classes instead of creating new ones. And I'm constantly telling myself this month, I'm creating zero new classes, just focusing on improving my existing classes. And when I say that to myself, I'm totally honest with myself. And then I end up mm-hmm. creating more classes. Uh, this has been going on for years. And that's why I have 130 classes. <laughs> but <laughs> but, but it's, it is still true that uh, maybe half of my time or most of my time is spent uh, creating uh, improvements in my current classes because I do keep them updated. Um, and, uh, you know, there's all kinds of updates, sometimes necessitated by changes in, let's say it's the SEO class, you know, there's changes every few months or so, but sometimes students point out, oh, the audio in this video is not so good. So I have to go in and fix that. And then it has to still fit with all the other lectures and other students complain about, Hey, you fix that, but create another problem here. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of this. And, uh, this is actually, I think in all business world or startup world or you know even mobile apps when i worked on them it was the same principle there's you know as the entrepreneur you want to over feature you want to build you want to create stuff and it's less fun to you know test and fix bugs and uh you know but actually the product really blossoms and improves after testing and all the boring things testing improving retesting retesting you know and 
you would think like, oh yeah, I tested it already. It's great. And then somebody starts complaining, no, there's still a problem. And you think, I think it can't be. Then I go and look and yes, it can be. So, <laughs> and I literally am dealing with this, like literally today I'm having this issue where some audios, you know, there are a million things can go wrong. And so I definitely allocate a ton of time to improve existing courses. I, I'm, I just put myself in the, in the position of a, um, uh, of an instructor myself for a moment there. And I just pictured somebody would send me a message just simply saying, I don't get it. And I feel like that would just make me want to throw my table uh, out the window. There is a lot of this. Um, but sometimes you get feedback from students that doesn't make sense. And the earlier me would be like, it's the student's fault. But the current me would be like, probably if they don't get it and they can only express that they don't get it, I just wasn't clear enough. And so mm -hmm. my question to them would be, which lecture, what was wrong? If they give me at least the lecture, I'll go literally go and watch the video, put myself into the shoes of the student and see, was it confusing? Oftentimes, I probably maybe skipped some things, wasn't thorough enough, didn't show a thing. So I'll refilm it and I'll actually send a thank you to that student saying, hey, you know, I, I did make the lecture better for you and mm -hmm. also for everyone in the future. So thank you. Mm -hmm. And it's important to to get that get that feedback uh, in aggregate, and then it's it's probably better for your uh, for your energy expenditure to then uh, fix that video, because then otherwise, if you can solve the problem for tens, if not hundreds, of students, one speaking out, but a hundred of them aren't saying anything, then that's probably a lot uh, better on the psyche. Yeah, exactly. Like if one person said something, you can bet fifty people experienced it already. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, okay, so. One thing I'm wondering about as well with Udemy is it, one of the things I, I like to encourage people to think about when they're in e-commerce is, you know, our, our core audience are um, are on Shopify and they're dropshippers. And there are a, lots of different paths that people can take. And I think Udemy was definitely one of them. But can you make any recommendations for like what levels of expertise or even credentials somebody should have if they want to be an instructor themselves? I think the theoretical answer is you should be a ex super expert professor, but most people aren't. And Udemy is for people who aren't that. Udemy is kind of for people who are passionate about teaching and sharing what they know and also are like a good intermediate level. Like you should definitely not be a beginner, but if you're teaching mm -hmm. beginners, like if I'm learning chess, I don't need a class from a grandmaster. I need a class from somebody, you know, who has 10 years experience and pretty good at it. Five year experience is totally fine. I just need to learn, you know, how do the pieces move? Uh, what are the openings? You know, like, what are the standard things? So I don't need to know how to think 10 moves ahead. It's overkill. And it's probably very mm -hmm. boring for the teacher to teach. They can't put themselves in my shoes. So, so a tremendous professor would actually be a little bit of a mismatch for the beginner. So solid intermediate or intermediate to advanced is actually a really good level to become a teacher. Having said that, being a teacher is, people think that being a teacher is really about, you know, a knowledge of a skill. But what I've learned over the years of being a teacher is that's a small part of it or maybe a half of it, a part of, but another part of it is can you present that information in a clear way so that mm -hmm. less people go, I don't get it, and the course structure is fine and with Udemy, of course, you know, you have to be good at audio, good at video. There's all these peripheral skills. So it's really expertise, uh, AV, you know, ability to create the audio, audiovisual ability, and also 
uh, teaching ability. So it's all of those things together is what makes a good teacher. Yeah, and and I guess further to to that point as well is that you don't have the luxury of kids being okay. I was I was gonna say confined, which is technically true, but also technically not true. But kids are I don't know. There's no other word. For, uh, forget it. Um, they're confined to the classroom for you know uh, two hours, three hours, uh, and there's a lot of bad news bears that would arise if they were to leave. So. I think there's there's more I don't know there's more leeway for teachers. I, I I had one class by the way. I had a marketing class in high school. Teacher didn't even teach. We had we we spent half the the class playing worms. So there was uh, you know there what, what can we do right? We still had to uh, check the boxes and and we still wanted to get our credits so we can pass and get out of there. Um, but you hear you just would hear what I just said there, which is get out of there. Um, whereas the incentive of people, I think there's also a little bit of leeway where I guess people are like they're self-motivated so they want to they want to sit they want to learn so um there is an element of that too but nonetheless yeah you're, you're making a fantastic point is that teaching uh, a, a core element of it is public speaking and it's important to be engaging and make sure that people can understand or and are compelled to keep listening and you know or, uh, and form a connection with you because the students definitely remember their teachers i know i i, I assume that teachers remember some students that like you know were significant in some ways especially if a student ends up becoming like Keanu Reeves or something like that. But for the most part, I definitely think it's more on the side of like the student definitely remembers a teacher a lot more, just the 30 to one ratio. Yeah. Also, you know, I had this epiphany for myself. This is after years of teaching during my testing. Sometimes, you know, can you, you know, it's one thing to listen, you know, when you're not confined, right? When you have the choice to leave at any moment, you know, to make it through a course as a student. Now it's a whole new level of boring when you have to listen to your own thing that you filmed for testing, right? Mm. <laughs> and I have to do this a lot. So my own realization and test that I had is some lectures that I filmed, I'm actually interested. Like I already know what's coming because I did it. And mm -hmm. I know the subject matter. I've refilmed that thing a bunch of times, but sometimes I can present it in such a way and use the right kinds of tones and the right kind of logical structure that I don't lose myself even as a listener, even though myself, I'm very bored of myself, right? But mm -hmm. I can tell, oh, wow, this lecture is well-made. I'm keeping my own interest and I am I can respect the teacher. Whereas maybe some older videos or some other ones, you know, they just don't do it for me. My mind drifts and I listen again. Maybe I got distracted. Same thing happens on some part. My mind drifts. So it's really like just perfecting your own presentation as an instructor to the to some kind of crazy level that I didn't even think was possible. Sometimes um, that, uh, you know, like this just kind of epiphany that I had for myself that I didn't even realize was possible. But there's so, so in that, you know, to that point of the, keeping the student's interest level, um, you know, as an instructor, you have to really improve your craft. And, you know, in the regular classroom, the teachers, they don't actually have to do it. I listen to a lot of college lectures on YouTube and, you know, the present, the, the presenting is okay, mostly not great. Mm -hmm. uh, especially if they get into like, you know, PhD student, they, 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 they're not presenting really well. They don't captivate, but, uh, and they're not really graded on it. You know, they're, the class is fine anyway, but. In, as an online instructor, I mean, you if you don't present well, people leave. People leave bad reviews. It's intense, so you so the pressure to improve is 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 really strong. So I had to kind of go through that evolution. 
That, that's fantastic. And then there's certainly uh, plenty of avenues for people who are compelled to, to do it, which is great. We live in a great time where people who want to speak have the opportunity to speak. Um, and, I'll, and I'll leave it at that because uh, I want to do some, some gear shifting here. I, what I did was I, I look at uh, I looked at your website. Um, I looked at some of your material, and as usual, I always try to find things that are distinct. I just try to avoid asking questions that have already been asked. And one of your most popular videos at over 122,000 views is on KPIs, which is key performance indicators. Now, this might not be as actually, I was about to here's what I was going to say, and then I realized it was wrong. It might not be as important for someone just running their own business uh, versus running a business for others. Um, which I might slink by on a mere technicality, but forget it. KPIs are important regardless of a single person operation or not. And now me personally, I had a bad history with KPIs because uh, I've been in a lot of retail spaces and sales jobs. What I found was KPIs were something that I was instructed on and reviewed on. I wasn't always happy with the way it was influencing behavior. So in a sales position, let's just say uh, a customer walks in, I spend an 30 minutes to an hour with them uh, and it, I didn't close. So they come in the next day there, they thought it over. Uh, they actually, I'll quick, quick aside, whenever customers would say, uh, I'll, I'll have to think about it. I always imagine that they go to the Harbor front and they just lean up on the railing and they watch the, the sunset and the seagulls flock by. That's always what I imagine. Romantic people do thinking when they think about, about it. it. Yeah. They really do. Yeah, yeah, Romanticize. <laughs> so with that said, you know, they come back in the next day, I'm not in somebody else is in. And they have their sales goal to me that day. So they're going to they're gonna take the sale. Um, there have been times, like I did work in another store, but we didn't do that. We were really cool, but that was more of the exception than the norm. So uh, in your experience, um, how have you been able to analyze KPIs correctly? Um, and by chance, have you noticed times where KPIs were not implemented correctly and they were actually a bad influence? That's a good question. So KPIs... You know, they, that by the way, that video is really old and I'm embarrassed of it by now, but did you reference? But, but KPIs, I mean, in the right time and place, they are really important. I think for any kind of new business or anything, anytime you create anything, there's the onboarding KPIs like sales conversion rate, uh, user onboarding, you know, how well they make it through your funnel. And those just purely technically, right? Because you mentioned there's a human element in the KPIs you mentioned, but you're in an online world, there's like, it's, it's just hard math. It's like, you know, mm -hmm. is it 7% or 8%? Well, let's make it 9%. And they're re really important to track because in a way, if you can't track, let's say your marketing effectiveness or your, any, or your action, well, if you can't track it, that's KPI. If you can't track it, how do you make a decision on top of, how do you make it the next decision that you're flying blind? So in some sense, you can't deal without it. You can, but then it's fraught with error. So it's ill-advised. On the other hand, there's, uh, it, it's, it's hard to find, sometimes it's hard to find the precise KPI. For example, like in my courses, there's data I get from Udemy of like how many students quit videos or how many students maybe quit how early, whatever, but like that, right? So that's a great KPI. Like I try to have like as much as possible completion rate as, as I can. And if I see one video is having like a 70% completion rate, another video is having, and all the other videos are like 90% completion rates, then I think, okay, I, I got to look at that. So, so that's really helpful. But on the other hand, 
there's the in- human intangibles. Like there's this anecdote, like for the longest time, students were commenting on one of my courses, you, you speak too fast. And so I went in and I slowed down. Never mind, they can listen at 0.5 speed or 0.75. Okay, let's say they don't know that. Then I went in, changed some things, spoke slowly, kept getting those comments. You speak too fast. And they're still, they're still you know, those, those hard metrics, the number, numerical metrics were still kind of similar. So I couldn't use that. You know, there was not enough information there. The students were still telling me, I'm like, I can't slow down anymore because then some students will say, you speak too slow. And so then, like for the nth time, I went in and I literally tested. I watched the video, purely intensely focused on what was wrong with the video. And it wasn't that I was speaking too fast. It was some concepts were complicated and and they were just a little confusing. And so I took that video, broke it down into two videos, never got that comment again. So really when they were saying you speak too fast, what it really meant is the thing is just confusing. (laughs) And there's no way to get this, right? from a KPI, like you can get half of the story, like maybe they're struggling with the, you know, the completion rate, maybe a little low because they got frustrated and quit, but you'd never know the root cause until you kind of sort of talk to the people, tested and tested. Um, but certainly KPIs can give you a clue. Um, they can give you a clue. Yeah, that's a fantastic way of characterizing it. You can't rely on any software like analytics, KPI, data. This is a tool. It's not everything you should use because then, you know, you're just, you're not, you're not accounting for the human element of it. Yeah. I'm not sure like where, what, what exactly is the point that I want to make, but I, I will say that I think the human element is always like the root of this because we don't get that data without human behavior. So all of that data does communicate something. And what we, what we were saying about how, if one person is speaking up over it, that means 50 other people are having the same problem. They're just not saying anything. So in a way, you are taking the pressure off of them where they're just going to be themselves. They're just going to behave, and then the data will reflect whatever their behavior is. So, I mean, there is there is human, uh, human element to it, but, um, and then also, what was the other point they were making too about logic and emotional intelligence is that when we're making the logical decision based off of the data here, but once we get past that layer, we get down and it's, it's still uh, largely emotional as well. So it's just a lot of stuff that's like a lot of synapses just firing off in my head. All right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna shift gears again. So the, we talked to somebody else about uh, uh, private label rights, uh, and for those of you who listened to that episode, I acknowledge at one point I switched it around. It was PRL by accident. I recognize that. I'm moving on. So I want to use my own uh, store as an example. So over the course of this series, I wasn't doing a store at first, but after listening and being inspired by over 45 50 people at this point yeah i okay you know i'm 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 running my own i'm gonna run my own store i got all the tools i got all the resources i I can do this um so i settled on the home office niche and the reason why i settled on it was because um i've been working remotely for seven years when i started freelancing and audio editing uh i've done some sales jobs freelancing this is remote so I'm passionate about it. I think it's great to have a home office and to have a creative element to an efficient workspace. So we don't get that if we were to go into like a WeWork or something. So with private label rights, um, again, we we should know what they what these are. But what prerequisite should my site have? Should I look into uh, before I uh, acquire one of these? And then if you want to take me through the acquisition process, that would be great. 
Are you talking about specifically about my courses, private label rights? Well, or... I, I did look through the list of them, um, but I didn't like absorb which ones exactly were relevant to me. So if one is relevant, that would be fantastic. But uh, I, I didn't mean the question in general. So private, private label rights is kind of a broad concept because if you apply them to a, you know, a widget, oh, right. Okay, right? Yeah. you can put your logo on a widget and hey, it's my, it's my logo, it's my widget. And so there's a lot of companies, let's say in China, who would make any tangible item allow you to white label, say, hey, not, now it's my brand. But, uh, and that's fine. And actually, that's the pure version of this private label rights because you know you have the rights, they give you a contract, your, lo your logo's on it, great. Um, with courses, it's a little different because it's never a pure situation like that because there's somebody presenting, who is that? Like sometimes I'm in the video, but even if I'm not in the video, it's my voice. Well, who is that? It's not like you can't say I made it, especially let's say a woman licenses the course. It's a man's voice presenting. She can't mm -hmm. say I made it or, you know, and probably the same thing for male voices too. We don't all sound the same. So uh, there is this element of like, you have to say there is an instructor. The course is made by our, you know, it belongs to our brand. We partnered or whatever the phrasing might be, but there is a certain instructor in the course, which that instructor element doesn't uh, take place in mm -hmm. the widget world, you know. So that's a little different. But I think for the home office space, let's say, I mean, the home office space is great because, well, everybody is doing a home office and there's a whole solopreneur movement that's been around for a while. Now, the corporate world joined the home office space which is fantastic mm -hmm. for your niche because now your niche just ballooned. But um, I mean, you've you've big, the thing that was the corporate office, all that money mm -hmm. went to the home office. So for you, that's great. But if you were to pick a niche, let's say like a solopreneur or even upskill, then approximately half of my courses would apply to your store, right? If you wanted to sell things, um, and and so. Just like a widget you'd get from you know China or somewhere it would be made for you, you can generally the way my uh, private label rights works, it's pretty simple. You pick the courses you want. Once you know the transaction is made, you can edit any part of them. If you want to put your branding, your logo on it, it's fine. You can change the name and title. And then overnight you get this content that you know kind of taking me years to create. Uh, and you can get any size library of it you want. And, Keep lifetime revenue of it, right? So if you can sell, that's really great because, like, the problem I have is that most of my time is spent refilming, mm -hmm. creating. You solve that entirely, and all you have to do is sell. If you can't sell, that's a bad experience because then you know the problem with private label rights is almost always there's an upfront payment, which is a problem. It's a risk. Um, so you have to prove that your store is able to sell stuff. Once you know that you have a customer base who's consistent, who buy, this is fantastic because you've kind of, you know, there's always some risk, but not as much risk. And if you can sell, you know, your production cost is low, essentially just the one-time payment, and then you keep uh, revenue lifetime, and I update the courses, so oh, you okay. get the updates. So, yeah, so like, you know, you it, it works indefinitely. So. That's how selling courses might work. It's not a common case for Shopify stores. It's it's more a courses is more a case for like if you have a like 
Teachable, you know, those course platforms that allow you to create a course site on your uh, website. That's the more common scenario. People come to me for licensing the courses when they have like a Thinkific or a Teachable store. Um, and it's a little less common for Shopify, but I can see how it can work with Shopify. Yeah, because um, I, I would say that in its present state, if it was just a, um, a, a, a dropshipping fulfillment store, uh, I've seen plenty of them, and I, I, and I know what their, what, their, what their game is. It's, uh, it's testing products, uh, seeing what they can turn into a winner, and then uh, you know, they'll move on to other products. And in order for, I think, for it to be a good fit, the store has to evolve as a brand. And, and that's something that I definitely want to do too, which is again, why it's important for us people to pick niches that they're interested in, uh, that they have passion for. Um, we run stores. If I'm going to run a store, I want to buy the products myself. Um, and oftentimes I do because it's good to test the products out just to, just to make sure. Um, and also uh, thank you, by the way, for, for clearing up uh, when I said that P um, private label rights, I did think it was specifically about courses, but it's much more broad than that. It can be uh, applications. Uh, which, by the way, I didn't actually uh, think about that. I didn't realize that applications could be uh, private label or widgets, as you're saying. Well, the, the kind of things you can hold in your hand, not necessarily a phone app, but like, uh, you know, like any product you might buy on Amazon. A lot of them are... Oh, okay. Well, yeah, sorry. Okay, thank you again for clearing that up. Because when I when I hear widgets, I habitually go towards um, ah, Word, yes. WordPress widgets and plugins, stuff like that. Okay. I'm the old school widget that yeah, yeah. you... you... <laughs> <laughs> I thought WordPress widgets was old school, but that's uh, that's where we are now. You're, you're two for two on that one. Thank you. Okay, so uh, we're gonna we're gonna shift gears again. So this one, by the way, this is a question I was uh, planning on asking uh, way before. But you see what I was saying about how these things they unfold organically. So uh, I want to talk about Wave, if you like, which is um, your 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 store right now. And the reason why I want to talk about it because I think it really reflects a lot of your personality and the the positivity that you want to express to others uh you guys can't see him right now but he's got a blue background and even a blue the choice of a blue background i think communicates something versus some, I, I don't know if somebody goes with green green is a good color too but there's i don't know it just it just stuck out to me like the sky and the background and uh and, and the smile on your face and it just uh, makes me feel makes me feel better thank you yeah you're welcome uh, one of the through lines of this program is the origin of a business starts with a personal desire to solve a problem like with uh, with the store that I'm running, um, so yeah, where did this idea came from? And you know, what's your 10k foot overview of it? We want to accomplish with it. Are you using it to test things? Uh, uh, take it away. So, wave if you like was kind of born. I was walking down the street, listening to music, and really being into my music in my you know, but in, in my head, in my headphones. Nobody outside my head knew this, you know. And I like you know, I like some esoteric music, and I was like, wouldn't it be so cool? If like somebody else who liked that music, if I knew who they were and they knew that I was listening to it and we would sort of sort of share that experience because, you know, if, if, if you think of a song or a musician that you're passionate about the most, people tend to be, you know, people who are into music, people who are not, they're not, but like people who mm. are into music, they're like, oh my God, yeah, I love them too. Oh yeah. Right. They have this level of experience and Maybe they don't know what to do after. Like, okay, you like them, I like them. But but in that moment, they're like, oh, yes, there's this, this great euphoric moment. And I was like, well, wouldn't it be amazing if any every person that I pass by that shared that passion or that specific, you know, musician or song, I could share that, you know, because we are kind of, you know, more and more we're isolated in our devices and things. Mm -hmm. But we're still, you know, we, we're still meant to be social, right? 
we still meant to share experiences. And I thought, well, um, what if I, you know, what if, the, you know, I would just, what would happen if I saw that person? Well, I guess I would just wave at them and they would know, right? So that's how I thought, well, what if I wear, you know, the face of that guy, the musician, um, on my shirt and it says, wave if you like, and people would know that they would see, oh, it's that guy and mm -hmm. they would wave. Now, it's not legal to put people's faces on t-shirts, especially, uh, you know, brands like musicians, but concepts and ideas um, you can. So that's how I, that idea was born is I thought, well, people should, people want to find others who are passionate about what they are, but they have no idea who they are. And those people don't know to express that to other people. So it kind of stays hidden because most people aren't passionate about that music that I like. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't comprehend why, but like most people aren't right. It, it's incomprehensible to me. Like I, I would think, oh my God, like everyone should love this. But they don't. But it would be amazing to find the people who do. And so I created this brand. And, you know, at first I made the t-shirts for myself. I, I, I made all the t-shirts I wanted for people to like, <laughs> to wave to me. And uh, there's this one, like, Russian singer who's a little older. You know, he was popular. He was like a Bob Dylan of Russia, I guess you can kind of simplify and say. So the only people really would, that would recognize him is, like, all the Russian people that would walk around. And, you know... Maybe they, they can't see very well yet. So they give me like these weird looks like, is, are you for real? Like they don't wave to me, but like they give me like the weirdest, like curious looks. And I think, oh yeah, they, they, they got it, but like they didn't get it fast enough. But I have that experience with them where, you know, they, they, uh, they, they, they see the shirt, they almost wave, but they don't wave. But, but I did make a few shirts like that for myself. And it's really actually fun to wear them because every time I, wear them and walk outside it's like an adventure waiting to happen because mm -hmm. like who's gonna wave i'm, I'm curious myself because mm -hmm. one thing that it made me think about is the last time i went to uh i know i talked about before we started recording that i'm into ska but there's also an australian band that are like my favorite band which is uh, the cat empire and i went to go see their show in 2015 it was a while ago and and I know everybody there is a fan. Well, you get like a couple of people who are like, oh, who are these guys? They just, I don't know, they happen to be on the street at the time. A very rare anomaly. I don't think it comes up often, but I'm, you know, okay. Um, but everybody there is a fan, right? And yet I didn't connect with very many people. I added one guy as a friend on Facebook and we haven't talked since. And, it was, and, that's, and that's it. So I think what happens is that you have a feast or famine. Uh, where we have these opportunities to connect with loads of people, but it's hard to do. So it's kind of like I've always had like kind of an issue with networking events. I, I know they're great and everything, and I you know I can't wait to go to one. But I I don't know the 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 the, the motive of it is always like, hey, hey, yeah, nice to meet you. So how can I extract value from you? Like that's basically what what happens. So what you're doing is you're you're kind of like pacing yourself. You're giving yourself opportunities for a couple of uh, meaningful interactions, but better than none and probably also better than a hundred all at once. I think so. I think, you know, I think there's this, now I'm not doing online dating. I'm married, but like when I was, there was, it was very obvious this thing where like, if you have so much choice, every individual choice becomes less worthwhile, right? Like devalues the individual a little bit. And when you have few little choice, that one is like, Oh my God, it's the one. <laughs> So maybe that element would be helpful here because it's, you know, one at a time kind of. Yeah. Uh, I mean, for me, the, the way I would approach that is I think my own, 
um, belief in like predestination and spiritual guidance. And so the things that we encounter are are there and we have to set our intentions. If we don't set our intentions, then we can't communicate with the uh, with the universe about you know, what we want and the universe can't accommodate for that. Um, so setting our intention, wearing a shirt saying, wave if you like beer, you know, that's that's a very clear way to set an intention in a way that's like, it's it's humble too, right? Because you know that you're kind of putting yourself out there a little bit. It is a little bit. Every yeah. once in a while when I do go out, when I have a confident day, I'm like, yeah. When I have a less little bit of a less social day, I, I'm like, hmm, do I really want to put myself out there? But but it's nice. Like it, it's it's a fun thing in the end, and it's a conversation starter. And you know, one reason I liked about it that I liked it is it's it's a because it's a conversation starter. It's a little bit you know, it makes it more brandable, like memorable. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing I thought would kind of give it life as a brand a little bit. But just a side point one because we, earlier we were talking about you know choosing some, you know, branding. And, uh, and last question about that before we move on to it, but, um, do you have a vision for where you want to uh, go with it? Do you want to get it into stores? Uh, where, where are you, how are you working on it? Uh, I mean, I don't see it being sold in stores in the, any sort of the foreseeable future or any, right. I'm not even thinking about it, but really, um, it's an Etsy, Amazon, Shopify play, and maybe a few of the smaller, uh, you know, fashion retailers like you know, Teespring and Redbubble and ones like that. Mm -hmm. But really, there's an issue of focus where it's not my even my main business at the moment. Sure. So I have to, I can't spread myself too thin. And so uh, I, I do, I do because of that brandability and catchiness of it and just the fun factor of it. I, the reason I felt good about it starting, starting it was that, you know, it, it has all these inherent built-in advantages. It sort of promotes itself. It's a conversation starter. It's more catchy. I think it's a, my premise was that it's a little, you know, kind of more fun to wear. Mm -hmm. um, and those are, com, com, you know, competitive factors in Amazon in general. Um, we can talk more about it on a show like this. Whereas if I sold, you know, regular t-shirts, like if I did get the, them white labeled, uh, you know, like, uh, they'd be okay, but like not, it wouldn't be really mine. And I couldn't really build a brand on top of it here. There's all these things that are possible. And what I really also liked about it is at its best, this business is purely automated. It's never really like that, but it's theoretically largely automated, but can really scale. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's relativity here where um, the, the energy that you use can expand outwards exponentially. Um, so rather than having to like print each individual one, uh, which would be more of like a boutique service, this is more the ability to put that same energy in and then people can uh, order in the hundreds. Yeah. I pr print on, uh, on demand. Uh, I, I am so happy that that's a thing. Because uh, uh, my girlfriend, she's a fantastic artist, and we've come up with a couple of uh, images uh, together to to sell. And you know, we can uh, we can take our time. We can just put them on Redbubble, on Zazzle. We can set up our own store, and then just let it be. And if anything happens, it happens. And if we want to push it, we can market it. Uh, but we don't necessarily have to. And the costs are so low. Yeah, it's great. It's it's definitely something I think for uh, people to uh, consider some way that they can put this into their into their brand as well. Um, I would say print on demand is something that uh, it's an un if it can fit into a person's brand, I would definitely uh, recommend it. 
You've done quite a bit. And um, what I'm wondering is what are some of the uh, accomplishments or some of the projects or works that you've done that really have stuck out to you? Uh, Maybe ones that we haven't talked about so far. Thanks. Yeah. uh, You know, I always kind of feel and, you know, this maybe will sound like, you know, false modesty, but I, I really kind of feel like, yeah, I've done something. Sure. But like, I think my best work is ahead of me and I, I'm okay with the things I've done, but I'm kind of always looking forward. So, you know, I am happy with, I guess, the courses that I have and things like that, but there's this human element that I have. Like there's a few individuals in my coaching that I know I changed their life. Like, Mm -hmm. like there's one guy who, you know, when I started working with him, he was in a struggle period. And when I met with him on Skype calls, he had like, you know, you can see in his face, it was, he was sad, like things weren't working. His family depended on him. It was like difficult calls. And then years later he has i'm not even allowed to say how much money he's making but what the goal was that he told me i'd be happy with this amount mm-hmm. i believe he's 30 or 40 times that a month so his his family is just transformed like mm-hmm. and and i and and he's growing and growing like he's not even like his whole family is working on his business now his son is taking over operations and like you know running with it so like it's just like beyond life-changing and this is for a guy who blue collar guy he was cleaning um parts of homes as a business and then he created a cleaner and that w- and then we i helped him sell that cleaner on amazon and etc cetera, etc cetera. so just it, uh you know that kind of thing is what i'm really kind of actually proud about because i know from a to z where we, we were and were were actually the real life change that it helped to have you know create um this is not common it's not like i do this every day for I, for people it's you know that person has to participate throughout a long period of time but that if you look back i'm like wow this is the that kind of thing is uh what's really i'm proud of this actually like like i tell mm-hmm. this like and i feel good about it you know um and then there's things that you know took almost my entire education and career like for example I don't talk about it too much, but like the music, I, you know, I, I'm a part-time, very bad musician, or let's say, you know, the right word is amateur. And when, you know, any amateur, they don't know how bad they are, but like they think they're great and they want people to listen. But, uh, but I do put my heart into it in all my creative writing, all my education, you know, all my video experience and audio experience and uh, just experience creating things go into these songs. And I, I would never be able to even come close to even the level that I've gotten to uh, if I, you know, didn't have this like long history behind me that was, you know, I think at the top of the show, we were like exploring our curiosities, mm-hmm. you know, going just beyond the career and gaining all these other skills. I think the the music that I actually create, I'm actually really proud of it because even though I've like, you know, written books, one song that's like a beautiful, if you were to create a beautiful song that's moving, it's infinitely harder to create than like a business book because a business book Mm -hmm. is kind of logical, you know, step one, step two, step three. There's not a tremendous amount of creativity or fulfillment you get from a book as a creative person. But if you write a song that somebody's like, wow, I just got taken to a different place for three minutes. Mm -hmm. Then I'm like, wow, that's, I'm, Per, on a personal level, that for me is, is actually the best accomplishment. Uh, I'll say this about 
um, I mean, I, I have my own my own musical preferences, uh, of course. And what I notice are some of the most significant experiences I have with music is um, I remember I was in this art store in uh, downtown Toronto, and I can't remember the song that came on, but the melody and the the lyrics of it it suddenly made me think about the passage of time and how much time had passed up to that point and how much time will continue to pass and that eventually it runs out. And all of those thoughts all came into my head all at once. And I suddenly got like really emotional and I, well, it's an art store, so I was in safe territory, but still, yeah, I mean, music ha can, can be that, that powerful. So, you know, I don't think people have that kind of emotional experience looking at a spreadsheet, but if you do, you're welcome to be a guest on the show. I would love to hear it. And I don't mean that, uh, well, a little sarcastically, but by all means, we would love to have different kinds of people on the show. Really, diff really different in this case. Yeah. All right. Here's a question I, I was so excited to ask because you 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 foreshadowed chess earlier, and I haven't had a chance to ask chess yet. So cards on the table. I'm an abysmal chess player. I don't. I I, I might have won a couple of games in my lifetime, but in my humble opinion, I think chess is the single greatest game on the planet. It's certainly the most important. Um, and speaking as like. You know, uh, I'm a, I'm an active gamer to this day, and the problem is, is a lot of games these days they undergo changes. The development team will have to put out patches to um, adjust the balance. And my running theme is, or my running joke is that if they were to release chess today, they would have to nerf the queen. Um, now, chess did have a long development phase, by the way, so things did change over time, but it's done. They figured it out. Leave it alone. The beauty of games, and this is why it's important for people to find some way to play a game, even if it's just on their phone, is that it allows for an environment to make decisions without consequences. Um, and what that lets people do is that you actually learn about yourself. Uh, what I learned about myself in chess is I'm highly experience driven. Um, if I know I'm going to have a really good experience, that tends to supersede my desire to win. Um, not always, but in chess, it seems to come up. So when I play chess, I just turn into a bloodbath. I just try to like get all my pieces out and I just try to uh, hack away at everybody else. And I just, I don't know, for me, it's like a scene of Braveheart. Um, so that's what I learned about myself. But can you think of anything you learned about yourself from playing the game? That's interesting. Uh, so you maybe um, are really attacking mindset, right? Like you're the Mike Tyson, in, in, in your mindset, you're the Mike Tyson of all things being equal, right? I, I, I'd like to substantiate that but oftentimes i'm more of like a defensive person so i think because chess i just let loose um so maybe it's like defense 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 counterpunch defense 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 counterpunch so right. maybe more like mayweather it may be right so mayweather i think he's known as a he would say differently about himself but it, you know my limited knowledge is he's more of a just defensive guy right mm -hmm. he he he's counterattacking. i think he he would probably say about himself he's a counterattacker, but I think he's just more, I would say almost more defensive than uh, I think the counterattacking one is one who's like you know lightning strikes, um, power punching when mm -hmm. he goes on the, when it's his turn. May, Mayweather is not known for a strong punch. He's okay, but he's not a power puncher. Um, too much boxing in this probably. But um, but I think um, in my chess. I mean, I, I, people might wonder where's my accent from when they're listening. So I was born in what was then Soviet Union when, uh, you know, the superstars of the day, if you think who are our biggest stars today, I, I don't know, Cardi B, uh, <laughs> people like this. Uh, that's the one um, we're in right now. Kim Kardashian, they're like the biggest 
not most known people. When I was growing up, it was uh, Gary Kasparov, like the, ch the chess grandmaster. He was revered for his brain. And he was the superstar of my childhood. And actually, he lives in New Jersey and I live not far. So it's my dream to meet him. And if I ever met him, I would be like, oh. But um, that's just a side note. But um, but when I was taught to play chess, it was more like think, 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 think. It's really like a patience of mind thing because I think you see now you're very, very popular, the fast chess. Mm -hmm. But it's to a chess purists is uh, anti-chess because the whole premise of chess is to think, think, think. When you think you have a move, keep thinking, think. And the idea is to come up with many solutions and come up with the great solutions, great solution. And actually, I find it useful now because now there's so much compulsion, right? Mm -hmm. Anytime you're bored, open your phone. As soon as you open your phone, a million news articles. Oh, right now you're angry at all of them. Okay, bye. Yep. It's, um, the stimuli is coming at a, such a rapid rate. And, you know, we talked earlier about emotional intelligence and waiting for, you know, the emotional part of the brain gets triggered earlier and the logic gets triggered a little later. The patience of mind, to me, I think that gave me, that chess gave me that, you know, with my teachers, like literally they told me, sit on your hands so that I couldn't just grab the pieces, you know, uh, when I was a kid and uh, I learned that. But from that, um, to your point, you know, there's this purely attacking style. And then my style, what I kind of found also was I was a counterattacking style. Mm -hmm. But what intrigued me in the counterattacking style was that if you look at famous games, um, there's like this moment where lightning strikes, where like you don't see what these people are thinking yet. But when you get there, you know, like they make some move and you're like, why did they make that move? Five moves later, they're like, oh my God, like they saw this. Um, that's the, you know, whether they're counter punching or punching as an attacker, they're the Mike Tyson of it. So in chess is where your brain becomes a power puncher, uh, whether it's counter attacking or, or purely attacking. But it's, it's never, you know, defensing, defense is okay. There's room for that. It never was appealing to me just to be a purely positional defensive person. Mm -hmm. um, there is a there's a strong element of that in chess, and they can win and everything. But if you look at all the grandmasters, uh, Gary Kasparov, um, I've, Gary Fisher, super attacking, like lightning strike. If you watch their games, historic uh, superstars uh, of chess. If you watch their games. The highlight games, oh, it, it's just like lightning striking. It's, it's, they're Mike Tyson's of brain. Um, that, that's what I really like about chess. That's terrific. You know, I, I one of the things I find about defensive play, and I know, and by the way, people, I warned you, we were going to be all over the, we're going to be doing a lot of gear shifting. Uh, so one of the things that I think is a almost like a tension between the sport and the and the audience is that defensive play is not entertaining. Uh, Floyd Mayweather is kind of like the big bad. People want to take him down because uh, I think some of his personality based, but it's a lot of just like they don't find him enthralling. And uh, coming from a, a large video game background, this I don't expect anybody to actually go check out. But if you want to see the equivalent of this in the video game world, um, there is a YouTuber by the name of uh, Ampel Lemon, and he does this series called Never Ever. Um, like there was never ever going to be another show like Monday Night Raw. There's never ever going to be 
uh, another driver like Dale Earnhardt. And one of them is there's never going to be another player of Super Smash Brothers Melee uh, called Hungrybox. And in this game, everybody plays aggressive for the most part. There's a couple of people who are like floating defensive, but Hungrybox is like the defensive archetype and they loathe him. There, there was one tournament he won. Somebody throws a crab at him uh, after he won, and he was, he was, he was so upset because well, he he works so hard and he plays so, uh, and he plays very well, but it's just not entertaining. And so I think defensiveness has always have been a, a sticking point for a lot of people. Um, I'm I'm the opposite. Like if I, when I'm when I'm playing people and people are like trying to get up in my face, that's when I start to get like, you know, uh, uh, frustrated. Like take a second, man, breathe. You know. Yeah. Well, these scenarios the game scenarios there you know in real life you have other variables but then um you can in the games like you said you can really test yourself in a different environment in a good way it's like in a safe way and you can see really where, where you're really at you know if you didn't have these you know society constraints um maybe you'd be like you know the mike tyson of you know this is your spirit this is the my spirit of mike tyson so i got i'm gonna do well i'm gonna do two more questions for you and then we'll uh, get you on out of uh, the, the final one will always be like the traditional uh, words of wisdom question. But uh, this one, it's a question about creativity. It's an important subject, and uh, you've talked about it on your content. So from your vast instructional experience, have you ever been able to like noticeably improve someone's creative output? And have you found like tangible ways to actually improve the creative mind? Or I don't know, I, I'm, I, for me, creativity is like one of my strongest uh, aspects. And so when people ask me, like, how did I do it? I don't really know. I just kind of exist. Like I just kind of do my thing. I'm being very self-congratulatory there. But if I had a technique I could share, I would. But for the most part, it's really just been like absorbing information, letting my mind do its thing, and then spitting out a result. So uh, I don't know. What, what, have you come up with anything to help improve someone's creativity? I mean, generally, people don't come to me for improving their creativity because people come to me for like, how do you start a business? How do you promote a business? Those oh, sure, sure. straightforward things. But it is my one of my favorite things is the personal development. Like if, when people ask me, how do you become more creative? I do have ideas on them. But people, you know, for me, I think about that all the time. And uh, every once in a while, it comes up in my work with clients and things like this. But really, it comes from intense focus on a problem. So, and I think there is the right balance of, like you said, the, you know, in your off time, you just, you know, some, I think you alluded to it, like some things just kind of float up, you know, like you might be taking a walk and some things kind of float up. But I think there's this concept like creativity, creativity is just things that come to you, but it's really what you obsess over that you work on it all the time and work and not, not the Buddha image, right? Don't sit on the tree, under a tree and think, think, think. That is only a part of the process. I think part of the process is, intense passion about something, intense work about something on a long-term basis. And when you get to a certain point, um, you start to really start to think creatively in that field. Um, like a beginner would be creative, but that's because they don't know better. They would just be all over the place. When a person gets to a little bit intermediate, this is actually, and studies kind of try to replicate this, They people saw that um, people are at their most creative where really, you know, the, unique ideas might come up, unique accidents, and where people become extremely experienced in something, they get less creative because if you were to ask me, well, how do you promote a local business? I would have to do no original thinking. I would fall back into a pattern. 
Aha. Oh yeah, you know, Google local, do this, da, 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 da. okay, here's your steps by, right? It's great for whoever's asking me because I just I know the steps, but I don't have to think. So I'm not forced to think. So in the intermediate level, this is where a lot of the cre creative, creative uh, work happens. And when you are pushed, when you need to make something better, right? Like if cars now are fine, then they're fine. But the problem for every car manufacturer is that their competitor is getting better. So they have to get better. And so they come up with innovations. And so there's this push for innovation. Sometimes it's necessity that's really pushing. But sometimes it's like the intense, after the necessity happens, the intense work, and then during the downtime or like during exercise, you know, like I go for a walk sometimes, I get ideas, I listen to music, I get some ideas. Uh, then you get ideas. So it's really the combination of the intense work and the downtime where your brain is still working in the background. And, you know, maybe this is not the best answer of on how to be more creative, but it's kind of my uh, sort of best. Well, as a, as a self-professed um, creative type, there's there's some significant takeaways for, for there. One of them is the relativity of fine. Like at one point in the unfolding of the car's uh, lifespan, the the, uh, uh, the manufacturer said, "Well, they've only blown up like two or three times a week, so um, I don't. Know, I think I think we're good. I think we're good." And then somebody else comes along and says, "You know, maybe we can maybe not have them get blown up at all. Get out, get out." And then the other thing too is that what you said about how when you uh, fall into your your pattern, um, it doesn't uh, call upon the creative mind. That's really important too, because what that means is in order for somebody to continue to evolve creatively, they have to continuously put themselves in a new challenging position. So, however good they might think they are, they have to continue to um, improve that. And then it speaks to the benefits of having competitive mechanisms if other people are pushing ahead well we don't want to fall behind so at the very least we're that keeps the bottom from falling out so yeah no the, there are some uh, there's some valuable takeaways in there for sure and sometimes it's, you know combining fields so like you know the dilbert cartoon the, the guy who made it he was he's very famous for saying you know he's not the funniest guy he's not the best cartoonist but he kind of combined it into a thing that you know he was able to make the Dilbert. So sometimes combining things in which you're pretty good, not the best, um, will kind of land you in a creative spot, unique spot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, and and the other thing too about Scott Adams is that it was based off his experience too. So he he had had he had come from the. Uh, from the corporate world and so he had a vast array of knowledge and then he also said he's a trained hypnotist so i don't know maybe he there's just some some subtlety or some like subliminal messaging going on in his comics that compels people to read i don't know but if he's figured out to make it work more power to him all right alex uh this has been a blast uh we we went uh, we went over but technically i don't actually have an over so i don't know why i said that anyways we're gonna get you on out of here so our final question is as traditional as the first one. Um, if you have any closing words of wisdom, perhaps an answer to a question I didn't ask, uh, you're welcome to uh, share that with us and then plug away. Tell us how to reach out, what content you want us to look into. Um, because we, in the first chunk of this, we definitely got into your your your, your work as a teacher, um, but there is so much more to what you uh, have to offer. So I strongly encourage uh, listeners to uh, pay attention to what uh, Alex is about to uh, tell you to go look at. Thank you. Thank you for all those kind words. Um, I guess what well, most people do come to me for, you know, business type advice. So I guess the thing I see the most and we can, you know, add intelli emotional intelligence into this is you know, when people get excited about ideas, you know, oh, I have a business idea. I'm going to open my Shopify store, right? This, this, this. And people get um, excited, 
at first, naturally. And excitement is an emotion, has some things that are known about it. You know, it's, uh, it causes movement, right? It causes us to get started. But it also causes us to overestimate the good. That's why we're excited. We're, you know, we're, so it's, it's fraught with error. Um, not to say that it's, it's, it's to be enjoyed. It's a really great emotion. We don't all, always have it, um, especially in 2020 in quarantine. Not a lot of excitement, mm-hmm. but but so it's to be enjoyed. But it's to be understood that hey, okay, there may be some errors here. Uh, and the great thing, like let's say I wanted to start a restaurant like 30 years ago, you know, I'd have to spend like a hundred thousand dollars, right? If I had to open a Shopify store, it's really inexpensive. So there's literally no risk pretty much Mm -hmm. minimal risk negligible risk let's say and so the wisdom i guess i'd say is you know if you were to start a restaurant or open a gym or something it's really hard right but actually if you were to open a shopify store you should just do it because the next thing in emotional intelligence is the work that you'll have to do let's be honest you know, you're sitting in front of a computer. There's no, there's no like stadium of fans cheering you on. It's boring work, right? It's kind of, it's not always fun. Online entrepreneurship behind the scenes is a little boring. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of that. And I guess it's the long-term perseverance using that excitement to push you, but the long-term perseverance to sustain you and to get you through, you know, there's always this like value of, value of despair, right? Why is mm-hmm. my store not selling? Oh my God, why is my business not working? Happens to everyone. And, you know, as long as you start early, persevere long-term, eventually the idea you have, which may be your Shopify store, will work, but only after those things that maybe not realize, most people maybe don't realize when they start, hey, my excitement isn't, that's not going to stay. Excitement usually goes away. On day two, there's no more excitement. Mm-hmm. There's the work. Um, and then the long-term, there's kind of just self-management and just making it through all the humps, even despite everybody saying, Oh, your store sucks, or oh, your design is ugly, or whatever. A million things people say. They usually say they still tell me everything. You know, everything I try to do, I get this. And I know, like people usually who say that, it's easy for them to criticize. They're 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 not even doing anything themselves. But still, you hear a lot of these negative things. But you just kind of have to block it out enough to persevere beyond that. And usually, once you persevere, it's like Einstein had this quote. I think you know, I'm not the smartest, but I'm the most persistent. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where you start succeeding usually a lot later than you hope, but it does happen. So I guess that's my w- words of wisdom and, uh, where, you know, you might, you also asked where people can reach me. Uh, my main website is problemio.com. Um, I, obviously my, t- uh, t-shirt store is uh, waveifyoulike.com. And of course my passion, the music is people, you know, I don't have any ads on it. So if people find me on YouTube. Alex Gennadinic music. I'd really appreciate that and comment and say hello and everything. Um, yeah, don't listen. I also say hi. So that that's where people can reach me. All right, terrific. Uh, well, listeners, you uh, you have your work cut out for you. So I uh, I want you guys to hop to it. And thank you, Alex, once more for your time. And we will check in soon. Take care. Hey, listeners, Joseph here, coming to you after the interview. I asked Alex if he wanted to share one of his songs with us, and he agreed. He sent us Michelangelo. We put the full song in for you to listen to, so enjoy. Poets go mad describing the light you emanate. 
For centuries they broke their quills and now it's my fate But I can paint you worlds with my caress So I touch the back of your shoulder as you Thanks for listening. You might have found this show on many number of platforms. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or right here on Debutify. Whatever the case, if you enjoy this content and want to help us thrive, please take a few moments to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you think is best. 
We also want to hear from you. So whether you think you'd be a good guest or want to weigh in on anything related to our show, you can email podcast at debutify.com or connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Finally, this podcast is created by the passionate team at Debutify. If you're ready to take the plunge into e-commerce or are looking to up your game, head over to debutify.com and see how it can change your life and the lives of many through what you do next. <laughs>